All right. Well, last week, as we were concluding, we were in Acts 2.39, and we were led there from, um, or I should say we were cross-referenced also to 3.25 in Acts, but we didn't really close up the loop, um, so I'm going to begin here with just a few minutes uh, relating some of the conclus uh, conclusory items of that. And the first thing I wanted to do was that in Acts 3.25, which we were directed to, as I indicated, from Acts 2.39, you'll find that in the phrase, you are the children, that cross-reference to Romans 9, 4, and 8, as well as Romans 15.8 and Galatians 3.26. In the part of the sentence or the part of the passage that says, and in thy seed, that one cross-references to Genesis 12.3, and Galatians 3.8. So I just wanted to review that because I know that I had said that uh, 2.39 cross-references to at least that part of the scripture that says to all that are far off, it cross-referenced to Acts 10.45, and I believe I gave the rest of these, Acts 11.15 and 18, Acts 14.27, Acts 15.38 and 14, as well as Ephesians 2.13 and 17. So that being said, that's a recap that re-establishes the scriptures once again that can be gone to to cross-reference. We're not going to go to all of those. I am going to go to Acts 10.45, which was one of those that cross-references, and we're also going to go to Ephesians 2, and we're going to begin there. So I will begin with Acts 10.45, so where we are at is we're in the book of Hosea once again. We are discussing Hosea as the prophet of the greatest love story of the ages. And we are essentially at about Hosea chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. And these are the scriptures that we have learned that give us further insight as to what is being said and conveyed in the biblical record in the book of Hosea. So we've been cross-referenced now to Acts 10.45. And I think this is a good one to go to. Um, and I think you'll see why, because it pertains to some things that many uh, probably have heard in the, in the modern church world, and I think there's been some confusing things that have been uh, relayed and conveyed and some misconceptions and some preconceived notions. So let's go to Acts 10.45. If somebody wants to read it, uh, I'll let you read it while I get ready with my notes. And, and, and all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. All right. 
Uh, we'll stop there. All right. So, they of the circumcision and the Holy Spirit was poured out. So, are we to believe the word Gentile here? Once again, let me convey what it is. It's ethnos, number 1484. It's derived from 1486, etho. Etho means be accustomed to uh, usage or custom. It's interesting to note that Thayer's Greek lexicon refers to it simply as a race. The definitions of Strong's under 1484 are, one, a multitude associated together, such as a company, a troop, or a swarm. Secondly, a multitude of individuals of the same nature or genus. Three, tribe, nation, or people group. So that's just a recap of the definition of Gentile as we've given before as used in New Testament scriptures. Uh, Gentile is used a few times in the Old Testament, and we aren't reviewing that right now. We'll stay with this particular definition as we have it under 1484. All right, so let's just ask ourselves some questions. Are we to assume or to believe that the Holy Spirit descended upon merely any multitude of individuals? See, the answer is in the context of the subject. And who is the subject of the scripture? The subject of the scripture is actually Cornelius. Because we would need to go back in chapter 10 a little ways to find out who that subject is. So he was a devout man, the scripture tells us. So, and his troop or company or tribe was with him as devout believers as well. So this is something that is not to be overlooked. Because being a devout man implies and infers, certainly, that he had some knowledge and some reverence for the God of creation, at least in part, if he's going to be called a devout man. There's no you know, expounding upon that. But since Cornelius is referred to as a centurion, which simply is that he's a captain of a hundred in the Roman army, and it refers to him as being of the Italian band. We're in Acts 10.45, for those who have just joined. Um, it's not unreasonable then for us to conclude that at least this, quote, Italian band of Cornelius's is a Gentile, is it? It certainly wouldn't be unreasonable because the scripture does say while they of the circumcision, which believed, were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. So one has to say, okay, understanding the definition of the word is very critical and very important. So according to the definition, a company, a tribe of people, a people group, a nation, one has to ask, well, why didn't the scripture just say that the Holy Spirit fell upon the Romans? Because he was a Roman centurion. And 
isn't everybody that's a non-Jew, according to the church world today, a Gentile? You see, I asked that question to try to get people to think about what it is that they have prior beliefs about or what their preconceived notions are. And so there certainly shouldn't be any reason why. So the word Gentile there has to have some other connotation than what we have predominantly believed or the preconceived notions that we have had, many have had, that it simply means anybody that's not a Jew. And in spite of the definition. So those that don't know the definition, they fall into that trap and fall into that preconceived belief and notion rather than actually understanding it. Now, remember this is all in reference to Acts 2.39 and 3.25, whom we accurately concluded pertains to the children of the prophets, etc. And Judah and those living in and around Judea and Jerusalem are not the only children of the prophets. It is the entire people of Israel, an immense multitude, as we're told in Hosea and nearly all of the other prophets. So we're talking about centuries later, eight eight or so centuries, in fact. So Cornelius is likely one of these people that it says, and they of the circumcision, they of the circumcision, Well, what does that mean? So now we have to get a little bit more understanding of what that means if we don't know. Um, So it's clearly likely Cornelius is one of these, quote, uncircumcised, not of the circumcision. Or some may say, well, he's a Gentile because Gentiles were those who did not practice the custom of the Judahites. And what custom is that? The custom of circumcision. Because we are talking several centuries later. They have been divorced by God. They've been cast off. They're in the world without God, as we're going to see in other scriptures. And so it's quite possible that he's no longer even knowledgeable of that custom among many of the dispersed. And for heaven's sakes, nobody you know, we're, we can't just infer on our own and say that he was not one of those who still practiced that custom. And the only reason I'm bringing it out is because of what I'm going to bring in the rest of Ephesians as well. So the blanket application of what I'm trying to convey of the term Gentile to any group, tribe, or company other than Judah has nearly irreparably harmed the proper understanding of this greatest love story of the ages, because it is nearly universally believed and accepted as meaning simply non-Jew. And today that belief in and of itself conjures up a belief or a perception not intended in the biblical record. So when one appropriately defines the word and applies the proper connotation being conveyed, then it makes sense, because as I say, When it says the Gentiles right here, well, what are we saying? Did it fall upon this troop of Cornelius's? Did it fall upon a multitude of individuals of of 
Cornelius's Italian band. You see, and that's why it's important for us to have the definition. Now, as I said, we're also cross-referenced in this scripture to Ephesians 2, 13 and 17. And the context for this is um, let me get to Ephesians because I don't think I wrote everything down. I didn't. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2 and the context for 13 and 17 actually begins at 2-1. Um, and I don't think I'll go to it all, but that's an important scripture. 2-1, Ephesians. And you has he quickened who were dead in trespass and sin. Now, once again, who is he talking to in Ephesus? He's talking to those who were dead in trespass and sins. Well, who was that? Well, some might say, well, it's the whole world, Doug. Well, not if you're going to read the rest of the, uh, of the uh, epistle to the Ephesians. You has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who were trust? Who were those dead and trespasses? And and so let's let's go ahead and read um, eleven through nineteen. So we're going to drop down quick to eleven. Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Let's stop there. Gentiles in the flesh. Remember the definition we just read. Gentiles in the flesh. What does this mean? Wherefore, remember that you being in times past, Gentiles in the flesh, are we a company in the flesh? Are we a troop in the flesh? Are we a tribe in the flesh? No. What it was, was the custom in the flesh. See, that's the part of the definition that's applicable here. So, in times past, Gentiles in the flesh who are called, and this is where we actually learn the truth and the validity of that, because what is the custom? Who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Okay, well, who refers to themselves as the circumcision? Well, it has to be Judah, because Judah was the one they believed who was the only one who was still entrusted with God and who still was in favor with God. And so therefore, they are of the circumcision. And of course, Christ expounds on this as well. And other scriptures do by Paul as well. They thought that their righteousness was by their circumcision, what they did in the flesh, what they did with it, carried on with their hands, etc. And so... Two times we're told, well, hold on before I get to that thought. So here we now have the proper context in 11. Wherefore, remember that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. Okay, who was called uncircumcision? Well, uncircumcision would have been the Israelites who had been cast off and ostensibly were no longer practicing the customs and the requirements that God had given in the covenant. Is that making sense? Um, 
All right, so and 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. All right, I'm going to stop there because as I said, we were cross-references, cross-referenced in 325 and 239 from Hosea 1.11. Uh, we were cross-referenced to this chapter in Ephesians. Two times in verses 13 and 17, they are referred to the far off. Just far off from God in a spiritual or righteousness sense? No. They were far off as Acts 2.39, which directed us here, conveyed. The promise unto the men of Israel and their children, Peter addressed throughout the entire book of Acts 2, as Paul also is doing here in Ephesians 2. In times past, Gentiles in the flesh. And as I say, this Gentiles in the flesh, what does that mean? We've got to understand what it means. They were called uncircumcision by that which was called the circumcision. Uncircumcision would have been the Israelites who were cut off and circumcision would have been Judah who still believed and practiced everything under the law. And the sentence didn't end there though in verse 12 either. It said strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. So Gentiles in the flesh is not a a, a tribe or a multitude of people whom were called um, just Gentiles in general. Gentiles in the flesh is a is a is a reference to a custom of the tribe or the multitude or the people, and that's what that scripture means. And the breach that we are reading about in fourteen and fifteen and sixteen is the breach between Israel and Judah and how they perceived each other. <clears throat> Judah perceived anyone outside of the covenant as being aliens or foreigners or strangers. But God never did. God continued to hold them in his esteemed plan and in his loving arms, if you will, in how and he was intending to 
bring them back to him again. So there is the enmity that was between them, the partition between Judah and Israel, which went all the way back, which Hosea led us to in 1 Kings, where the division of the house of Israel and the house of Judah occurred. That that situation or enmity sprang out of that division and continued on for hundreds of years. And this is what Paul is referring to here in Ephesians. The, if you think about it, it was Judah's sanctimonious righteousness that she was professing, that she was practicing all the works of the law and this unrighteous branch, if you will, this unrighteous uh, people of the other ten tribes. Um, I made a note here. Uh, five eight. I wonder if I forgot to write down what that was. Uh, let me just see if it's five eight in it. Ephesians. For some reason, I don't think that it is. Um, let me see. Uh, what enmity? Oh, yeah, sure, I did. Okay, my note, I couldn't understand what I wrote there. But it said, my note, what I had for my note was that this scripture incidentally cross-references to five verse 8 so chapter 5 verse 8 amongst others and from 5 8 to 1st Peter 2 9 and these scriptures again 5 8 for you were sometimes called darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light so Paul is conveying to those in Ephesus that hey you are now called out of that darkness you are light in the Lord walk as children of light no longer should you walk as if you are not with the Lord as you have not just with Yahweh as you have in times past, but now walk in accordance with the light that you've received. And so, as I said, it cross-references to 1 Peter 2.9, where it says you were called out of darkness, and verse 10, where it says you were not a people, but now are the people of God. And all of this relates right directly to Hosea. and chapter 1 verse 11 and it says then shall the children of judah and the children of israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come out of the land for great shall be the day of jezreel and so that was a couple things that i thought we would do well to go over i'm not sure if i explained it the best but um i think it's necessary to do that because of the perceptions of what even some people think about circumcision and uncircumcision. And I thought it would be worthwhile for us to talk about that uh, from Acts 10.45 and Ephesians chapter 2. So um, I hope that that helped on that particular aspect. Um, One of the other scriptures that we were cross-referenced to was Galatians 3.8. 
And I thought that it would be important for us to go to Galatians 3.8 as well because, again, it's a very under, uh, valuable understanding that actually awaits us there. Uh, if somebody can flip there before I get there, I, you can go with Galatians 3.8. I'm going to grab a couple other thoughts in my notes here. Anybody there yet? All right, I'm at 3.8. All right, I'll start at 7. Know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen. This is another one of those words that we need to get an understanding of. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. Uh, did I have eight and nine? No, three. Galatians three eight. So I'll quit there. Um, the the word heathen here. Um, the word heathen is number fourteen eighty four here, and the word is ethnos. It's translated ninety three times as griegos, G R I E G O S, sixty four times as nation, and five times as heathen as here in 3.8, and two times as just simply people. The definition of 1484 is a multitude, a company or troop, a multitude of individuals of the same nature or genus, um, a third, a tribe, nations, or people group, and then it describes in uh, the fourth one, the Old Testament, Griegos is applied to nations not worshiping Yahweh. Okay, so here we are with another word being translated heathen in our Bibles, and it conjuring up all sorts of confusing thoughts, confusing, ridiculous, preconceived ideas and beliefs because of the connotation of the word heathen. Instead of understanding that it's the same definition, predominantly, or the same word usage as is the word uh, Gentile. Are you following me on that? So we could easily have just inserted the same word Gentile. But again, it's more the definition of the word that we need to understand so as to put meaning to what's being said there. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, or what? The people, or the tribe, or the nations, you see, may have assisted in a better understanding than just the word heathen because of our perception today of the word heathen. So who was cut off? Who was no longer worshiping Yahweh? Who was unbelieving and faithless? Who was acting in sorts as heathens, as we understand the word today? Well, certainly Israelites. And we could certainly say Gentiles, or Israelite Gentiles, or Gentile Israelite, as that is the word that was used in actually 314 also. 
And but at all times, we're talking about the same people, the children of Israel. And I don't care if this doesn't fit your idea of Yahweh, but this is his love story of the ages. And frankly, you know, we could do the same thing we're doing with Hosea. We could do an expository review of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, his epistle to the Ephesians, his epistle to the Corinthians, the Hebrews, the Romans. And we'll confirm and conclude the same thing every time. So the question that I have is, have we, in these last several weeks of fellowship, in any way, drawn anything from our own individual thoughts, our own individual beliefs, our own individual or preconceived notions or theologies or ideas, or have we simply gone through the scripture? Anybody? Well, yes, the thought occurred to me. And I don't even know if it's what you're hunting for. But when they came out of Egypt, there were foreigners with them, weren't there? Yeah. Yep. And so those people, through faith, aligned themselves with the Israelites, didn't they? Yes. Okay, so... Isn't that where the grafting takes place? I mean, well, no, and that's not that's not where I'm going or what I'm asking here, um, because no, that that's not exactly the grafting that is being referred to, and we're not discussing those scriptures right now about the grafting, because really, it's it's the issue about first of all. We were in Hosea 111, and 111 says, Then shall the children of Judah, the children of Israel, be gathered together, appointing themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So all this was, all that was that we just went into, really all of last week's and part of this week right now, is we uh-huh. were simply going to the scriptures that were cross-referenced there, leading anybody who wants to study the scriptures to the conclusion that the people that are being expressed about here in Hosea are in fact the people that Paul and Peter were expressing in these various books, Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, and so forth, and the book of Acts. And it's the same people. So as I say, I was simply asking, Simply asking, now, have we in any way, have I drawn anything from my own thoughts, from my own beliefs, or put any of my own preconceived notion or theology or anything else there, or have we simply just gone through the scriptures and asked the scriptures, what is this pertaining to when Hosea says this? And we did exactly what the scripture requires us to do, go to the story, go to the periods of time, and find out who these people are. And that's well, what we've and, done. Okay, and it all revolves around the covenant and who the covenant was with. Yep. 
And so there hasn't been any drawing of any, you know, false conclusions. There hasn't been any of our own thoughts and theology or preconceived notions. And it was from Hosea 1, 10 and 11 that we were drawn deeper into that love story of the ages by returning to Deuteronomy 29 in the covenant recorded there. And then we found in Deuteronomy 29, 14 and 15 the reference to also him that is not here with us today and that day of that covenant. And that cross-references us back to Acts 2, 39 to 1 Corinthians 7, 14 to all of these other scriptures that we have gone over. And even last week, we had conveyed the story out of Corinthians of Paul and the marriage and the children. And I don't well, know it's if I... Go ahead. Group of people fast-forwarded, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You take a glimpse back, and then you take a glimpse far in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. We have this prophet of Hosea. Certain things are being told by God for him to do, to draw the picture, if you will. Draw the picture in their mind of what they did to him, what the Israelites did to him in not only violating the covenant, violating the marriage covenant, the marriage contract, the marriage bed, and even the children. And as I was going to say here, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians 7, it had everything to do with marriage that I referred to last week, but I wasn't really sure if I expressed it enough because I don't think I actually went to my notes on this, but I did mention about how the unbelieving husband is sanctified um, by the wife and vice versa, unbelieving wife being sanctified by the husband. And it said, else were your children unclean at 1 Corinthians 7.10. And then at verse 12, Paul says, I admit that these are not my words. And then at 14, he says, he conveys the principle of how it sanctifies. So if you're in a relationship, and he was speaking to those at that time, because some of them were obviously in relationships with people who would not believe this or could not believe it or had not a desire to believe it. And if one in the relationship wanted to believe it, Paul was simply saying to them, stay in the relationship for the children's sake, basically. And that I don't think I really expounded on last week because this is exactly what happened. This is what God did. He stayed in the marriage, if you will, for the sake of the children, for the sake of those at Deuteronomy 29, 14, and 15, who he said he made the covenant with also them as well that were not there with them that day. And that's a very important part of it. And some would say, well, but he divorced Israel. Yes, he did. He did. Great. I'm glad we got that out of the way. Yes, he did divorce them. But you know what? He did remember the children, didn't he? Because right there in Hosea 11, 111, it says, Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. 
He didn't say they would go back into the land, by the way, either, did he? He said they would come up out of the land. That's another important clue that I think often gets uh, overlooked, because who now is going back into the land, even though God said they would come up out of the land? And they did. Those that did not received the condemnation of their unbelief and were destroyed in 70 AD along with the temple and so forth at Jerusalem. So I wasn't really sure if I, I had covered that thought, but one more thought on this. When you think about the husband sanctifying the wife and so forth, um, this thought occurred to me, and I put that into some notes too, you see, if God being the, un, the believing husband and his wife Israel the unfaithful and unbelieving, you see, it says uh, the word unclean in that scripture in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 12, that unclean as applied to the children was number 169. It's artos, and it means not cleansed in a moral sense unclean in thought and life. And I thought about that. You know, why is that important? Because Hosea's children are representative of the children of fornication, adultery, or children of whoredoms, as the scripture says. So might they, in a moral sense, be unclean in thought and life and have a propensity to do likewise? And this is the principle that Paul is conveying there. In other words, the children are better off for it by the husband sanctifying the unbelieving wife and fulfilling the covenant of the marriage that the children might be holy. Just food for thought. So as I say, I don't know if I went over that, but now... It is they that Peter says at Acts 2.29 that the promise was made to, the promise was made unto you, those of 2.14, you men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem and to your children and to all that are far off, just as Peter says in Acts 2.29. Another part of Hosea 10 110, Hosea 1.10, it said, you are the sons of the living God. Now, I told you that that actually cross-referenced to John 1.12 and 1 John 3.1, but we've gone to 1.12, but we never went to 1 John 3.1. 1 John 3.1 says, quote, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And I say, amen. So it's a very important cross-reference there, 1 John 3, 1. So the children of Judah, the children of Israel, gather together, appoint themselves one head. They shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And once again, there's a whole bunch more that we're cross-referenced to. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Can somebody grab that and 
Jeremiah, why don't you grab Jeremiah 3.18 and um, um, I guess I'll hit Ezekiel. What was that first one? I just got just got off dad duty so I can look one up. Okay. Uh, why Isaiah, don't you go to was Isaiah twelve eleven? Isaiah eleven, twelve and thirteen. 11, 12. And Russell, why don't okay. you go ahead and go go to Ezekiel thirty seven sixteen and I will go to Ezekiel thirty four twenty three. Now, I don't know if there's any specific order to what I had done here, but they were all cross references. So Hosea one twelve. Yeah, go ahead. Isaiah eleven twelve to thirteen. Um, I've got some thoughts on that one, so let's read it last because I'll let you, and then I'll go did into you, what I. Did you say Ezekiel thirty-seven, fifteen or fourteen or sixteen? Uh, uh, Ezekiel thirty-seven sixteen, and I have okay. a note there twenty-two for context. So maybe you'll have to do yep. seventeen to twenty-two for proper context. All right, go ahead. And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and ride on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and ride on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Yep, continue to 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Anymore at all. And that is, so once again, from Hosea 111, when we are told that, they're, that they shall appoint them, they'll be gathered together, and they'll be appointed one head, we're being cross-referenced to these scriptures, Isaiah 11, 12, and 13, Ezekiel 37, 16, and 22. So I read from 16, or Russell did from 16 to 22 for context. And Ezekiel 34:23, which is another one, and that simply is, is, is where we are told that there's going to be set up one shepherd. Oh, that's not, I shouldn't take that too lightly. Let me read that quick, and then Jeremiah will go to yours at Jeremiah 3:18. Ezekiel 34:23, and then we're going to come back to Russell's as well. 
Ezekiel 34:23, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. So we have all of these different parts of the piece that just is conveyed to us in Hosea 1.11. We have it being shared to us in the prophecy of Ezekiel. We have it being shared to us in the prophecy of Isaiah. We have it being shared to us in the prophecy of Jeremiah. And that's the case with all of these. I don't mean to imply that this is just uh, you know, uh, unique to Hosea at all. But the point is, is that that's why we have to read the Bible the way we need to read it, which is to take these contemporaries of Hosea, which, you know, these were, these prophets were contemporary with him. They, they were alive in nearly the same time spans and time frames, certainly within the same 60-year span of time when all of this was, was going down, where God had had enough and was going to do the things that he was going to do and carry out the things that he was going to carry out. Now, back to Ezekiel 37, 16, and 22, um, 16 to 22, very, very important things. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot that we would be cross-referenced to in these scriptures. I, I didn't even begin to, 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 to go over that. But remember, the two-stick analogy here or parable being conveyed here is showing them about these two sticks and who are these two sticks these two sticks are israel and judah he says one for judah and one for the children of israel take another stick right up on it and so forth and it goes on through all the way down so this is a cross-reference to the same thing that we're being told is going to happen in hosea and uh, uh, so now, Jeremiah, go ahead and give us uh, 3.18 quick. Okay. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north, the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Uh, I did not... I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure why. Let me see. What was that again? 318. Uh, in those days, the house of Judah. Oh, yeah, okay. So that that's exactly what it is. In those days, the house of Judah and the house of Israel will walk together. They'll come together out of the land of the north to the land that I've given for an inheritance unto your fathers. So once again, the house of Israel and the house of Judah being brought back together, just as Hosea says is going to happen. All right, now, Isaiah, uh, go ahead, Isaiah. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in Isaiah 11, but as for 11, 12, and 13, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Uh, let's see, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. All right, and, and see, that's another important one, because what was going on? The enmity, the enmity that we read about in Ephesians. And you're right, Isaac, there is a lot of very valuable information there in Isaiah 11. 
Um, Isaiah 11, the remnant of his people which shall go be left, uh, we find in that chapter as well. We're cross-referenced um, to Zechariah 10, 8 to 10. We are also cross-referenced to Hosea 2.23 and Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. But one thing in Isaiah 11, uh, for context, it tells us that while all of Isaiah 11 is largely about the root of Jesse, number one, just like you said, there's a lot there. So we're being told about the root of Jesse, and the context tells us that Yahweh shall set his hand to recover the remnant of his people. Well, we've already read about that being told to Ezekiel. So here we have the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Hosea. All of these people are all over different parts of the, the Israelite nations, if you will, having these prophecies to these people about what is about to happen to him and so forth. And the thing about shall be, he'll set up an ensign, that actually cross-references to James 1.1, which says, James, a servant to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, greetings. Well, once again, who is it all being written to? Who is it all being referenced to? It's all being referenced to Israel. That also cross-references to Acts 26.7, Deuteronomy 32.26, John 7.35, Acts 2.5 and 8.1, and 1 Peter 1.1. So there's a lot of information there to, to glean. But it tells us at verse 12 that he'll assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, that's another valuable piece of information because predominantly the church world just really believes that Judah was just right there in Jerusalem. It provides us the additional proof that, you know, there is a dispersion, something that we need to acknowledge or at least be aware of, and that everybody wasn't just right there in the city of David in Jerusalem. In fact, there were some who were Israelites or who were Judahites, and some who were not, that were masquerading as Judahites. As Christ referenced, and so did uh, John the Baptist, um, uh, and one thing that the church world has done is said, well, you know, Judah went back. All you got to do is look at Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, yeah, but if you go to Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find that there's a genealogical record of who did go back. And if you are, you know, that, uh, what I want to call it, studious, and you want to go through all of those genealogical records, you'll surely find that it was not Israel, number one. And number two, there certainly would be other tribes that would have returned besides just, uh, or excuse me, there would have been other peoples that had returned that had not returned besides those that were recorded there in Judah and uh, or in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm sorry. Um, so anyhow, um, I think that Hosea 2.23 is another one being cross-referenced there that we ought to just quickly read it, you know, because we're going to get to it eventually in Hosea chapter 2. But in 2.23 it says, I will sow her unto me in the earth. 
I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Thou art my God. Um, remember that in Hosea 2, 1 and 2, we were told that she is not my wife, neither am I her husband, these are not my people, etc. And all of this is, again, cross-reference to Isaiah 50, verse 1, where God asks her where her bill of divorce is. He does it rhetorically, of course, because he knows the law in Deuteronomy 24.1. And ultimately, the divorce decree is actually given in Jeremiah 3.8. So there's just so much information that connects it all and ties it together, you know, that um, I think Isaac mentioned last week, you know, he said it, it, um, you know, as far as, you know, digging deeper and stuff, you know, so many times it seems as if there are some that say, well, you know, give me something new. This is the, is the, is the milk of the word. Um, I'm coming to the conclusion that it is not the milk of the word. And the reason I believe it is not the milk of the word is because people who profess to be Christians do not know this. And not knowing this is part of the problem that we have as a nation of, of, of Christians, either here in America or elsewhere in the world, not understanding what is happening and why it's happening to us because we are failing to take the dominion, the dominion of righteousness over the creation that he's commissioned us to do. And it has led to a great harm. And it's, it's ultimately causing the destruction. And if God has a desire to cast off his own people, and take another who are professing to be his people um, and are bringing forth the fruits, it would be clearly within his prerogative to do so. I highly doubt that those that are professing to be his chosen people are actually bringing forth the fruits because everything that I see is certainly not that they're bringing forth the fruits thereof. Good evening, Rich. Sorry I haven't brought you in here, but I know you're there. Yep, here. All right. Well, Hosea 2, 1 and 2. Say unto your brethren, Ami, and say unto your sister, Ruama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. <clears throat> Neither am I her husband, and let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. We'll stop there for a second. In this scripture, we're being cross-referenced to Jeremiah 13, 22, and 6, and Ezekiel 16, which I believe that's where we just were, wasn't it, Russell? No, we were in 37. Let's, uh, let somebody go to Ezekiel 16. And we'll read 36 to 39. And somebody, Jeremiah 13, 22, and 6. And uh, 
Rich, why don't you grab Amos 8, 11, and 13? All right, so somebody tell me that you're there or somewhere. Is it Jeremiah 20? Go ahead. Jeremiah 13, 22. I'm there. All right, go, Russell. And if you say in your heart, what have these things happened? Why have these things happened to me? Where are you, Ezekiel? I'm at Jeremiah 13:22. Okay. So, because of the magnitude of your iniquity, that's why these things have happened to me. Your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? or the leopard his spots, then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Therefore, I will scatter them like drifting straw to the desert wind. This is your lot, the portion measured to you. From me, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. So that's what he did. Yeah, that's what he did to Israel and told her what he was going to do. And so in Hosea, he says, you know, um, this is this is clearly uh, clearly being showed to Hosea through what he is being told to do with his wife. I'm trying to get back to Hosea quick so I can reference that scripture. lest I strip her naked, set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. Oh, no, where was I? Yeah, no, that's right. This is 2-3. I guess I actually didn't read 2-3 before we started with that, did I? Anyhow, um, so that's that. Ezekiel 16, who is anybody there? Yeah, I don't uh, Ezekiel 16. I'm there. You are? Go. All right, go. Yeah. Uh, 36 to 39. Thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness, nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers and with all the idols of thy abominations and by the blood of thy children, which thou didst give unto them. Behold, therefore I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure and all them that thou hast loved with all them that thou hast hated. I will even gather them round about against thee and will discover thy nakedness unto them that they may see all thy nakedness. And I will judge thee as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged, and I will give thee blood in fury and jealousy. And I will also give thee into their hand, and they shall throw down thine eminent place and shall break down thy high places, they shall strip thee also of thy clothes and shall take thy fair jewels and leave thee naked and bare. Sounds like a great time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, talk about, you know, why would you want to leave your husband and all that he's provided and all that he promised to provide for your future, your future generations, your children's children, and all that and trade it in for this 
you know, being stripped naked and paraded around in, in front of your enemies and, and, and having people, you know, shake their head at you and say, oh, you know, boy, who is this that has done this to these people? And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just amazing how it all connects and how so profound the story of love is about how he, he, he loved her and how he did everything he could. Uh, flipping over in Ezekiel to 19, uh, we were cross-referenced to 19.13, and it's just another small little part as I recall. Um, And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. And this is relative to how Hosea says, uh, and I will slay her with thirst. So if you're planted in a dry land where there is no water and you're going to slay her with thirst, uh, boy, that's that's not a very good place to be. And, and what's going to happen next is what's really prevailed because what would you do? You know, what would you do in that situation? You know, you would cry out and desire to be where you once were, you know, so that it would be better with you than planted in this dry land and everything. Uh, go ahead, Rich, with Amos 11, 8, or 8, 11, and 13. Let's see. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon you, the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it. The clean out yep. of the earth. I will destroy it clean out of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. Eight, what was it? Eight what? Eight, eleven, and thirteen. That's what was cross-referenced, but context, the whole thing is fine. I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen down close to the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the day of the old. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that the plowman shall touch the mower and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Uh, were you in 8 or chapter 8? Yeah, I did 8, 11, and 13. Okay. All right, that's that's quite a different different version than what I've got here. But obviously he's he's still talking about this is a cross reference to the things that were told by the other prophets about what he intended to do with them in slaying them in the wilderness for all of their whoredoms and so forth and stripping her naked and so very very diff- you know, it's it's very, very visual. It's uh, what Jose is having to experience and having to convey um, and live, essentially, uh, is is pretty significant. In Hosea 
we have, and I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. This one here is interesting because <clears throat> I found that it cross-referenced to John 8:41, and um, I admit not making this connection before. Um, several weeks back, I think it was you, Isaac, that said, um, well, I think it was probably maybe even a couple of months, but anyhow, I think you and I were kind of on the same spiritual page as we opened up the door of understanding to who was really involved in the crucifixion of Christ. And you found yourself uh, commenting to me about, hey, I I can't believe you're, you're thinking about going this way because I was just thinking about that myself. But anyhow, in, in 841, um, it's been there for us all along, but... Christ himself said that they bore witness that they killed the prophets. And this reference to John 8.41, I think, is important. It says, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And this is interesting to me on two levels. First, remember that it's from Hosea 2.4 that we're cross-referenced to, the children of whoredoms. Uh, remember Paul's words regarding marriage that we covered last week and just briefly again here today, his, uh, marriage and the faithful sanctifying of the unfaithful. See, Yahweh was faithful and pleaded for the sake of the children, but the fathers of Israel would not listen to the prophet, and they killed some of them. And Yahweh said that they sold themselves and would not even remember it, and that he would not remember those children. Well, Christ is now speaking to those children whom he does not want to see and perceive or hear and understand lest they turn or be converted and their sin be forgiven, Mark 4, 12 and Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. You see, this is very important, I think, that it cross-references us when he talks about the children of whoredoms Back to John 8:41. The second reason that this caught my attention has to do with my other message preparations that I was doing, and I don't know what I'm going to title it, but I think I might title it "Why Jesus Cannot Be God" and "Why Yahweh Cannot Be Jesus." <laughs> now that ought to perk up some ears and make some eyeballs bug out. But, of course, I'm trying to get this title thing down because, you know, Pastor Peter said the title's important because if the message won't get you, then the title will get you. <laughs> so, so anyhow, but the interesting part on the second level to this is that is that very nature right there. They said... Um, let me see. Go to chapter. Go to John real quick. I know we're running against the top of the hour, but hold with me here for ten minutes. Go to John chapter eight real quick. And in John chapter eight, where it told us to go, eight forty one, it says, "You do the deeds of your father." Then said, uh, "Wait a minute. Yeah, you do the deeds." Let's see. It cross references to eight forty one. Did I write that down wrong? Hosea 2.4, um, children of whoredoms. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I think that's why. All right, so it says, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. All right, now, um, uh, I want to drop down to uh, 841, uh, excuse me, 858. Dropping down to 858 quick, it says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abram was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. All right. Now, in John 10, 30, flip over to John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So what is going on here? See, after both of these instances, they took up stones to stone him. In 8.30 and 8.58, or excuse me, in 8.58 and 10.30 of the book of John. And so why? The reason is, is because the Pharisees, the the Jews, the Pharisee Jew, Judeans, they answered him, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makes thyself God. But what did they say in 841? They said that their father is God. So here they were wanting to stone Christ for equating himself with God, and that he had said, before Abraham was, I am, and before, or even when he said that I and the Father are one. And so here they were, they were so upset, and this was so, I think blasphemy is the wrong thing uh, that is is referenced there, but they they clearly associated themselves as one with the Father in John 10, 38. And so when we go back to chapter 5, actually, I'm sorry, I did not read this. Back to chapter 5, verse 8, I didn't have these right in my notes because I just was buttoning this up last evening. In 5, verse 18, it is, this is what what they said in 5, 18. Uh, Let me start at 17 for context. But Jesus answered them, My father works hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. (laughs) I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Here they were equating themselves. Three chapters later, in 858 or 10, whichever one it was, they said, we got one father, and he's God. And yet, they wanted to kill the guy because he had said the same thing. And um, it just shows, I, I just found it was interesting that Hosea 2.4, when it, the, the specific verse, or the specific part of the cha- verse that says, children of whoredoms, and it cross-referenced to John 8.48, I was like, I know John 8, 48. I know what that, you know, generally the context of that whole thing is, and I had to go there. And I'm like, why did it refer me to there? And it was like, whoa, 
these are the children of whoredoms. These are the children that he did not want to see, that he did not want to hear. Does that make sense, Rich, do you think? Well, I'm thinking maybe the children of whoredom uh, were uh, from the other the other wife of Abraham, not the children of uh, Sarah. Well, yeah, it, it certainly certainly Esau, certainly um, uh, it could be uh, of of Esau. It could be of Ishmael, the because they said we have one father, Abraham, and. He didn't deny, Christ didn't deny that, that they could claim that. But he said if you were Abraham's... He said that they had never been in captivity. Right, exactly. And so, once again, I, but I thought it was really interesting that it cross-referenced to 841 uh, as being, you know, children of whoredoms. Um, so... And this goes to the issue I was mentioning to, uh, about Isaac, where we decided to do that study, um, basically showing who it was and that it was indeed the Israelites, people of the house of Israel, the tribes of Israel, or house of Judah, that were involved in the crucifixion. Because so oftentimes there's been so many amongst our myths that want to cast this on those people specifically that you mentioned, Rich, and I think this might be more of an indication that we've got to look deeper into this and understand who it is that actually is killing the prophets. And we certainly know the biblical record conveys it was the elders in Israel because they did not want to hear and they did not want to uh, repent, essentially. And I find it no exception that we're drawn right back to this out of Hosea to John 8.41. So I felt it was interesting on that level for me, for sure. And uh, I think it kind of dovetails into that. That makes sense with you, Isaac, too, the things that we had started several weeks back. Yeah. Yeah, and I just happened to be looking through my my notes here on my my digital Bible and... uh, one of them uh, is, and it just just happened to be here, Jeremiah 2.30. In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. That's one of the notes I took on this subject, and I just happened to be passing it. Yeah, that's, that's good, too. Um, that was 30? Uh, Jeremiah 2.30. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was trying to back up enough to find the context of exactly who he's talking to, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem. Uh, That tells, uh, it crosses us to to 5-3, and uh, chapter 1-5, and 9-13. In vain have I smitten your children. Uh, Did I do that right? Smitten your children. Yeah, that's right. That's where I'm at. Chapter 5, verse 3, chapter 1. Oh, excuse me. Chapter 5, 3 in Jeremiah and Isaiah 1, 5 and 9, 13. Yeah. They received no correction. Your own sword has devoured your prophets. Yep. When we were talking about that before, 
um, that seemed that the when Jesus is telling them uh, your your fathers killed the prophets, you know that seemed like a pretty major clue as to who at least some of those people that were present were. Absolutely, yeah. I think that this this here seems to coincide with it. No, I was going to say that. Yeah, and I was going to say that earlier is that I almost think this is a double witness which should help us to see and understand. And, and, and I think, as I say, part of our problems of those who've come to these biblical understandings, some in the midst want to continue to always try to cast a dispersion in a, in a different area. And part of that is what Rich referred to, and that being those that would be of the other lineage of Abraham. But those that would be of the other lineage of Abraham would also be those that would be Abraham's children who might be masquerading with those of Judah and who have taken on or tried to circumvent or co-opt because Christ himself does say you sit in the seat of Moses you know you have taken over the seat of Moses and so I think clearly once again all those things the preponderance is is clearly this is once again people of Israelite and Judahite descendancy along with other mixed multitudes with them and I think when we I believe that if we clearly keep that in mind, we're less apt to fall prey to a false concept or a concept that others want to drag us into. Does that make sense, Isaac? Yep. Yeah, I think you know so. what I yeah. think it was, too? I think it was a mixed multitude that was actually governing Israel because you had, on one hand, you had Joseph of Arimathea, you had Nicodemus, and then you had the other guys, Caiaphas and Ananias, in that crew. So, I mean, it could have easily, even though they were in control, didn't actually mean that they were true Israelites. Exactly. So, in other words, what right. you're saying, Rich, it's uh, so what you're saying, Rich, is it's much like today. <laughs> Here's uh, a nine. Isaiah 9.16, for the leaders the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Exactly, exactly. And, and, uh, and, and what it, you know, what's that say? See, people want to look at that and just kind of, you know, want to gloss over. But not only is he saying that they cause them to err, but he also said it causes them to be destroyed. Because yeah, if doesn't, God doesn't pronounced- say... Uh, it doesn't say that uh, they were caused to err and that God accepted them anyway and they all went to heaven and lived happily ever after. I didn't read that. Right. And But more of the point that I'm making here is that, in other words, if I pronounce a destruction, says Yahweh, and your leaders still cause you to err, you're going to go to destruction. You know, there's no two ways about that. And that's why, you know, we don't understand God's justice. We don't understand because we don't want to accept his justice many 
many times I think is the case. We would rather accept something else that we think is more just. And in reality, you know, his truly is justice, you know, because he's not afraid to carry it out. And so in when the leaders fail to properly teach and train, there are some that would say, well, it's not fair that those people who weren't told and weren't trained were led into destruction. Well, you know, um, that's not necessarily true because all of us were given a mind and he did things with us in instructing us that carried on from generations to generations. And you can bet and you can believe and you can understand because it's biblical that there was always a remnant who still sought after God and would like in that to be us too that we're looking for his ways as opposed to our ways because we know that his ways are better and our ways are clearly leading to destruction. And so we fall into that same category of a remnant who, you know, wants to do according to his will. And well, he that's put not it all in... down for us. He gave yeah, us a lot of that in judgment. Right. You know, but back in Isaiah. 28. Yeah. And yeah. And even if they were not teaching back then, you know, in Isaiah, and that's what I'm referring to back to that period of time, even though they were not teaching them, there was probably enough record, just as there is in our day. We have teachers who are out there teaching all day long, you know, every week, year after year, week after week. And yet, what are they teaching? And just as we've done in Hosea here, and I know sometimes people might tend to think, gee, can you get done with, you know, something and get on to something else? But, you know, the more I think about it, the more I say, no, no, there's no point in going on to something else because if we don't have this, what difference does it make to go on to something else? You know what I mean? And if we don't have the stick to or whatever you want to call it to actually study an entire book of Scripture from beginning to end and take it everywhere that it leads us so that we have a full understanding of it, I think we'd all be better, off, better for it anyway, you know. So um, I, as I say, I, 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 we're already, what, six, seven studies in, and we've got one chapter and a few verses of chapter 2 in Hosea, but I'd like to believe that we've learned a lot more than just Hosea 1 through 11. Amen? Amen. Yep. There's a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. And so that, to me, is is exciting. It's encouraging and, and... uh, you know the little nuggets, the the little nuggets that you, you you come up with, and and sometimes, you know, as I say, um, I think it's necessary. I I really believe in this time, it's actually vitally more necessary today now than ever that we understand and know these things, and get a better understanding of who our who our God truly is, because I think that's what gives you a greater appreciation for what he has done and for his creation in total. And it makes you feel really sad to know 
how ridiculous and woeful we are in terms of just carrying on the commission that he's given us to carry on. And it's all because we will not put wickedness in its place. And it's just it's just frustrating to know that we have such profound blessings at our fingertips. And of course, you know, everybody, I guess the vast majority just, yeah, we believe in God, but we don't really know if he's here or not or in what way he performs or doesn't perform or, you know, it's just kind of one of these things. And this is a very, very profound love story that unfolds in the book of Hosea. So anyhow, um, I know I carried on here for a little bit longer, so let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray for those people of yours, wherever they are, Father, I pray for our leaders in our nation. Father, strike them with fear, fear of, of you, and that they would come to their senses and learn your ways, and they would take that book and they would begin to scour it and to align themselves with leaders who believe in it and trust upon it, not just in theory or, you know, just in, in a, you know, in a, slight of hand way, but truly honor you and believe and trust in all that you have to convey. Father, I know the enemies are working overtime. I know they have plans against your people here in America, and they're working those plans all over your creation, every land that you've driven them into and that you've given them for a blessing. And we're watching the locusts run over and take over all the lands. So, Father, I pray for our people, and I pray for your hand of encouragement and mercy to be left upon them. And I pray for those that are sick. I still know that this virus is working its way around, and I just pray, Father, that you keep your people protected and that that uh, you you work it to good for those that love you. And that's my prayer, fathers. I pray for those that are with child that we know that we've got some new pregnancies and we're thankful, Father, for your being with them to uh, minister to them and to send your angels to be around them in their in their labor and in their in their months leading up to their their labor, Father, that their pregnancies will be well cared for. Pray for our families. Pray for you to guide and strengthen and direct us each and every day. And I thank you, Father, for the fellowship of these men. I thank you, Father, most of all, for being the here in our midst, where we are gathered in your name. And we thank you for that. Praise and give glory and thanks to you in the blessed holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. Well. What are we going to do next week? <laughs> somebody was supposed yeah. to. Somebody was supposed to say Hosea chapter two. <laughs> yeah, Hosea two. Yeah, that's what I was oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I guess I guess we'll do Hosea chapter two then. All right. Sounds well, like good a night. Plan. Good night. All right. Good night.